Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's time for another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Iget. Thank you all for being with us uh, today. And I want to say a special thanks to many people out there who uh, connected with me one way or another to say that you really appreciated the fact we devoted so much of yesterday's show to trying to unpack this uh, remarkable story, the leak of Justice Alito's draft uh, overturning uh, Roe v. Wade. Um, We're going to keep talking about it today because it continues to be uh, a story that is dominating the news across the country and here in Georgia, particularly as it relates to election campaigns in 2022. Um, we're joined to talk about that and much more by uh, AJC political reporter Greg Bluestein, also the author of Flipped, the book that everybody's been hearing a lot about um, and I guess has been doing quite well. Thank, uh, Thankfully, Greg, we're glad for your success with that. But Greg, here's what I want to start with you about. Yesterday morning was one of those days that journalists live for. A huge story breaks overnight, and you wake up and immediately have to get to work, really out there figuring out what's going on. It's exciting. It's thrilling, despite the fact that many people found the news yesterday very, very distressing. But it's one of those days. It's great to be a journalist, Greg. You know, it's one of those days where our readers, our listeners, our viewers, um, consumers of the news, they rely on us um, to give them the context, to give them development, and to give them the sort of window on how it affects them in Georgia. You know, there's a lot of national reporting, um, but what, what journalists here in Georgia did was give them that, that angle, that prism of how it is affecting Georgia politics. And for me, it wasn't early morning. It was late night Monday. I finished my story, my first version of my story, I don't know, around 1 a.m., popping out at 6 a.m. So that way I avoided the early morning rush. Good for you. Well, we'll continue to talk about what you reported and others reported on the show today. Riley Bunch is here. She, too, uh, reported on uh, the story in a terrific piece that you can now read on the GPB website. Riley is our public policy reporter at GPB. Hi, Riley. Glad to have you with us today. Thanks for having me, Bill. Definitely a lot to unpack as we go forward. Um, We're joined also by uh, Adrian Jones, a professor of political science and director of pre-law at Morehouse College. Thank you for being here on a very important today, Adrian. Absolutely. Good morning, everybody. And the person that we contacted as soon as we heard the news to say, please come do the show on Tuesday, was Professor Fred Smith, professor of constitutional law at Emory University and a former uh, U.S. Supreme Court clerk. So, uh, Fred, we're particularly happy to have you here as well today to help us uh, uh, look at some of what might be going on in the court itself right about now. Thanks for being here, Fred. Great to be here. And I'll do my best, even though we don't know much about the leak. (laughs) Yeah, right. I understand that. All right, Greg, let's get right to the politics of this. And then we are going to talk a little bit more about some of the uh, aspects of Justice Alito's ruling 
um, in, 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 uh, as we move forward on the show today. But, but Greg, let's start with what may be the most significant story overall for Georgia, and that is that if the Alito opinion holds, and if the majority votes for it, as we expect will happen, um, it appears likely that Georgia's fetal heartbeat law, which has been in suspended animation as it works, it's, it's been held by federal courts to waiting to see what the Supreme Court would do in terms of Mississippi. Um, it appears now that there will be nothing to stop it from taking effect almost immediately. They'll be beginning to enforce that what's essentially a six-week uh, limit for abortions, Yes. Yeah, it would ban abortions after a doctor can detect fetal cardiac activity, which is typically about six weeks into a pregnancy, before many women, of course, know they're, they're even pregnant. And uh, this would pave the way for that to take effect. Georgia doesn't have a trigger law like some other states, but it does have this legislation um, that, is, that is right now it's, it's in limbo status in the federal court system. It's been blocked by the federal courts. Um, but this would presumably, this, if, if a ruling in line with the draft opinion that we saw is issued, it would presumably pave the way for, for that law to take effect. Um, and right now you're seeing, of course, Democrats outraged and, and energized um, to get to the polls. You're seeing Republicans, in a sense, cautiously optimistic um, while they're condemning the leak of the, uh, the draft opinion. And you're also seeing a branch of Republicans who are going so far as to say that there should be a special session or another move next year to outlaw all abortions and go even further beyond this legislation, which is a, a dim prospect given how hard it was just to pass this 2019 law that, that passed with one vote to spare in the Georgia One House. vote, yeah. Um, we're going to talk a little bit more about that in a couple of minutes, but, but before we do, Fred, just help us with this aspect of it. So this, the fetal heartbeat law that Georgia passed, and which, of course, was challenged, um, is in the federal courts here in, uh, in, in Georgia. And it, it has been held because of the Supreme Court uh, looking at Mississippi. Um, so what's the process by which, if, if the Alito de- ruling decision is, becomes the law of the land, um, d- does the, the federal courts, do they automatically hear, um, uh, uh, dismiss the challenge to the fetal heartbeat law? Yeah, so what they would likely do is call for a supplemental briefing. Um, you know, the 11th Circuit could also ask the district court to initially handle the, the supplemental briefing. But in any event, a federal court um, will get briefs likely about this question. Um, does whatever the court does in this case affect uh, that case? And that would happen regardless of, of what the uh, outcome really is of this particular decision. Um, and, uh, you know, if the decision looked like the one that the first draft that has been leaked, um, then uh, you know the the Georgia law would be upheld, um, and uh, it would the injunction would be lifted, and it would go into effect uh, shortly thereafter. And, and Riley, we don't expect, although everything is up for grabs right now, given this leak, we really don't expect the final. Uh, ruling on this to be published until sometime late in June. It'll be after the primaries, um, but it'll come right in time for the beginning of the heated parts of the general election, Riley. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think it's really important to mention and mention clearly that it it could go through changes, right? We could see changes to this draft ruling. It could look a lot different or it could look the same. But I think um, having this come out, as, you know, Greg said, it really um, put a fuel on the the fire for both sides of um, on the election. And then the campaigns were already see candidates addressing it. We always already having talk of lawmakers making additional changes. Um, And I think it's also important to mention that Atlanta Journal Constitution poll um, showed that 68% of Georgia voters that were polled did not actually want Roe v. Wade to be um, overturned and there to be changes to abortion access at the federal level. So whether this um, people are expecting this to possibly mobilize Democratic voters a little bit more, even though Republicans are also kind of taking a victory lap on this, um, we'll see how it plays out at the polls. Yeah, Adrian. Let's pick up on that. Um, we, 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 as as we've already mentioned, um, there are legislators like Bruce Thompson who are already saying we need to have a special session of the legislature so that we can enact a law which would be a total ban on abortion in Georgia. Forget about a six-week fetal heartbeat uh, ban. And and I'm. I, it's interesting given the polling that shows. You know, a majority, a large majority of people uh, think there should be some form of abortion that's allowed. They, they may have they may think restrictions matter, but they don't want to see Roe overturned. So it's fascinating to me to think that Republicans believe that they could have a special session ahead of the general election and expect that would work to their advantage with their candidates in the fall. That's an interesting point. I think, you know, it, it might work with, um, you know, the Trump base. Um, but I think that, you know, with that polling number, 68%, and in my opinion, the fact that abortion is medical care that impacts everyone. And when I say everyone, I mean men and women and the community. Uh, I think one of the weaknesses of this particular issue, which does motivate polarization and perhaps turnout in the November election, um, is that it's, you know, it's cached as a women's issue, you know, what women are going to do with their bodies. Um, But, you know, pregnancy involves both male and female entities um, and have an impact on pre-existing families, communities. And so, um, uh, you know, I've heard some of the Republicans try to uh, have some reserve about pushing forward on abortion because it will be a delicate issue um, that people have gotten used to half a century of having access to. Greg, I guess the point of all this is to say that we know we now believe that base elections are the only thing that matter. We're no longer looking at the middle. We're looking at turning out our base. And that's why you might call a special session. Uh, but it's it, it strikes me as a risky proposition. Yeah, it's very risky. Um, it's, and I don't think the governor will call a special session specifically for abortion. I think there's a chance there's a special session as a hedge if Stacey Abrams wins um, to sort of curtail the governor's powers after the November election. But that's a different story. But you're right. I mean, you know, you're talking about a vote that was very emotional, very divisive in 2019 that took a tremendous amount of political capital um, and ended up having five or six Republicans who voted with Democrats and eight or or so other Republicans who just abstained altogether, who who skipped the vote. 
and there was repercussions. You know, I don't. I, we can't know if there was. It was exactly because of this vote, but a number of suburban uh, Republican lawmakers lost their seats in that 2020 midterm, um, and 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 some Democrats said it was a result of this vote. But look, from the Republican point of view, from Governor Kemp's point of view, there was a reason that the first major legislative push that he made. Uh, after he took office in 2019, was this anti-abortion measure? Um, this has been a, a dream of, of many conservatives who who want to contend that life begins at conception, um, and who see this as a culmination of a decades-long this, this this potential ruling as a culmination of a decades-long fight um, to prove that. And in Georgia, um, you know, the governor was rewarded by conservatives in, in the aftermath of that uh, of, of that 2019 law by saying he, he can say that. He fulfilled that promise um, that he campaigned on um, to restrict abortion. Yeah, I mean, I want to say something about the base election idea, though, because although that is typically true, and Georgia has very few inelastic vote, very few voters who um, are elastic, that is, vote one way one year, vote another way another year, um, there's one place where we know that's not true, and that's in the northern uh, suburbs of Atlanta. Um, and that, that's where uh, David Perdue did better than uh, Donald Trump. Um, and so that seems to be the one place in the state where there is a little bit uh, of play, where people are either willing not to vote in some elections and vote in others, or where they're willing to, to vote for one party and vote for another. Um, and this particular issue complicates that quite a bit. Right now, Stacey Abrams is doing the worst among people who um, have the highest incomes, according to the latest Survey USA poll, which came out last week. Um, that's where those voters are. Uh, and, uh, and so that's, you know, uh, it, well, you know, I don't want to give any free advice. <laughs> okay. I'm going to put on my partisan hat. Uh, Republicans go, please, yes, please have a special session. Please don't throw us in that briar patch. Okay. I'll take off. My partisan hat. <laughs> uh, Riley, let's sample, uh, some of the responses we got from Georgia candidates, uh, after the, uh, the draft opinion was released yesterday. Brian Kemp's office uh, put out this statement, Georgia's a state that values life at all stages. Governor Kemp led the fight to pass the strongest pro-life bill in the country. He championed the law throughout legal challenges. And then they go on to say that this unprecedented breach of U.S. Supreme Court protocol is deeply concerning. And we should probably talk about that in a little while. Um, that was the, the governor's office. David Perdue, when I'm governor, Georgia will be the safest place in America for the unborn. He went further during an appearance out in Rutledge with the anti-Rivian folks yesterday. Uh, Senator Warnock, I'll always fight to protect a woman's right to choose. That'll never change. Stacey Abrams, as a woman, I am enraged by the continued assault on our right to control our bodies and our futures. As an American, I am appalled by the SCOTUS breach and its implications. All right. So Stacey Abrams has also now said that this is going to become an animating force in her campaign. And what I think is interesting and important about that is we already knew that she was focusing on, on health issues in Georgia, on making sure that all Georgians had equal access to, uh, to, to uh, health care. Uh, this really fits right into that, and she can push this forward a bit, but it's all part of the same uh, uh, thing. Absolutely. Healthcare in Georgia is the Democrats, you know, linchpin in their campaigns, right? We have the argument for Medicaid expansion. And I would also add that um, when you're talking about the abortion access issue, you have to lay on top of it the issues that Georgia faces in terms of its maternal mortality rate. 
startling high maternal mortality rate, especially among black women, um, a lack of obstetric care in Georgia counties, right? So these are very all tangible things that Democrats can point to. And I think another um, place to watch this is in the U.S. Senate race um, where Warnock's up for re-election, right? You know, his health care issue um, stance and strategy has been so prominent as well. And we saw on the debate stage how quickly, if Senator Warnock loses that seat, how quickly we could go from having a, quote, pro-choice pastor to um, a, a senator that doesn't even um, want any exceptions, right, for abortion at all. So it's it's definitely going to be a driving, driving issue in the election in the campaigns going forward. Adrian? And I think I think that makes sense because I mean this is a real example of how your elected officials have an impact on um, the kinds of rights and privileges that you have in your state. Right? This isn't gonna affect uh, wealthy people in red states. Um, it's not gonna have as large an impact on women generally and families in blue states, but uh, poor women in red states or in places that are far between, which we already know, Southwest Georgia in particular, um, in addition to the lack of obstetric care, just hospital care, period, um, this just leaves a person with less um, (laughs) opportunity to make choices that impact their own home life as well as I'll just repeat, the community. Um, And for me, that's really terrifying. And I think that Georgia voters, Georgia citizens, even if they're not voting, deserve better. Uh, Greg, uh, this issue dominated the uh, Republican uh, U.S. Senate debate uh, that the Atlanta Press Club staged yesterday, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, one of the dominant factors was, of course, Herschel Walker is no-show. Um, and that was a, another theme throughout the debate. But um, the candidates were asked questions throughout the debate about um, this, this leaked court opinion. Um, and it really, you know, th- we've gone from kind of you know, always, there's, there's always some talk about abortion. So it's not like it's not been in the spotlight at all. But it's gone from that to being sort of front and center uh, overnight, right? Overnight with this opinion. And in that debate, we heard four of the uh, of the five candidates who showed up to, to debate um, unequivocally say that they support not only a, a ban on abortions of, from a federal standpoint, but also a total ban, you know, even in cases of, of rape, incest, when the life of the mother is at stake. And while Herschel Walker wasn't there, um, I also obtained audio from one of his um, campaign events down in Millersville where he, he essentially said the same thing. And he said the same thing in writing as well, that he also believes – um, he would support a total ban on abortion. So we will see that contrasted with, um, as Riley said, um, Senator Warnock's um, stance as a pro-choice pastor of someone who's willing to uh, roll back the filibuster requirement, 60-vote requirement, in order to pass legislation that, that would probably codify Roe v. Wade. We have no reason to believe that could happen because it takes bipartisan support to do such a thing, and we just don't know where Republican um, senators, even those who believe in abortion rights, stand on rolling back the filibuster. But that, that is something that Senator Warnock uh, will make it to a bigger case today. Fred, um, it, the Alito draft uh, sug- says that this is this should always have been not something that was decided by the Supreme Court, but rather that was decided by individual states. And that's where we'll head if the Alito ruling stands, if his opinion continues to hold the majority. Uh, But 
At the same time, we're already hearing both sides, Democrats and Republicans, arguing that it's time for a federal action of one kind or another. Democrats saying maybe it's time to eliminate the filibuster so that we can pass in the Senate a bill that would uh, guarantee the right to abortion across the country. And Republicans, on the other hand, who could take control of Congress in the fall, saying, no, maybe it's time for us to pass a law that will ban abortions across the country and take that out of the hands of the state. Yeah, it's super interesting that we're here. So in, um, in 1992, uh, the ACLU, as they were arguing, um, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, um, they said to the Supreme Court, if you're going to uphold the restrictions in that particular case, just go ahead and overrule Roe. And that surprised a lot of uh, people who were watching. It surprised some of the justices. But the reason why that was their position is because if an opinion comes down with the level of clarity of Justice Alito's opinion, at least people know what to do. At least people know how to react. Um, and, and it's doing so in an election year. And that's actually what um, advocates in the early 1990s said. If you're going to put, at a certain point, if you put so many restrictions on abortion, just overturn, uh, just overturn Roe. Um, but yes, yeah, so now that's where um, it looks like it may head. We, again, we don't know because this is a very the first draft, um, which often will look very different and may not even get five votes. Um, but uh, but if this does get five votes and it does look like this, then that's yeah that, that's where this is going to go. And for Democrats who want to do a national solution and for Republicans who want to do a, a national solution, there in both instances there are constitutional complications um, with Congress doing that. Congress has limited enumerated powers in the Constitution, and either side would need to be careful about doing that. Um, and I'll say that uh, that I think the Republicans in some ways actually have the stronger constitutional case um, for why they could act nationally. We can talk more about that, uh, but in terms of interstate commerce and so forth, um, if, if this is what it is the case that Congress can enforce the 14th Amendment, um, and so that's why today they could pass a law like this, and it would at least for some time be constitutional. Um, but uh, if the Supreme Court says this is not a right under the 14th Amendment, um, then Congress loses its ability to enforce this particular right. And so um, so the argument is probably stronger for the Republicans in terms of why they can do this, and I hope that's not too convoluted. Um, but uh, but for, for both sides, there, you know, that, that's the big hur- hur- uh, hurdle when it comes to congressional action. Thank you. Uh, Thank you for that. No, I don't think that was at all convoluted. I think it was very important that you pointed uh, that out to us. Uh, Adrian, before we get to a break, um, this opinion, you know, we've already seen that in the first day of early voting in Georgia, the state set a record for the number of voters who turned out at polling places. Um, I guess, I mean, double the number that turned out for the first day in 2020. And that was a presidential election year with Donald Trump uh, at the top of the Republican ticket. Um, And so it strikes me that uh, perhaps on both sides, this is really going to animate voters and get them out to the polls on one side or the other. Although it, I I think, you know, anecdotal uh, data suggests or anecdotal information suggests that people who are angry about something will vote when people who aren't angry may not. I think that this will animate turnout. Um, just as the stakes in the 2020 election animated turnout, 
Um, and, you know, in terms of this decision, I think that this uh, return, this focus on the power of the state um, should be motivating to people, right? I'm saying we're going to have a, a total ban possibly in the state on abortion. We've got SB 202 now that um, has some, in, gives the state some power not to certify elections. And so it is my hope that people understand that um, in terms of participation this year, the vote counts need to be extremely clear because this will uh, facilitate, hopefully, the riding of the ship if for some reason um, the state decides that it does not want to certify uh, elections in November and not have what it considered to be problems with the former president in 2020. Uh, Greg, before we get to the break, uh, this apparent ruling, uh, as Fred points out, things could change. But the Politico article, which was obviously uh, they have a real inside track on this, suggests that even though this opinion was written in February, they saw the five justices who supported this. They named them. Uh, back in February, they do suggest that in, in looking at where the uh, justices stand as of the publication of their piece, n- nothing has changed in terms of the majority. So the, the writing may change a bit, and we don't know how much it will, but the majority still seems to hold for overturning Roe. Um, the reason I say all this is to say this is where we see that elections do have consequences. Three of those justices put on the Supreme Court by Donald Trump, who explicitly said he was going to uh, name justices to overturn Roe. And what's interesting about that is, does anyone really believe that Donald Trump has an actual moral or ethical belief about abortion one way or the other, or whether he understands the politics of using abortion as an issue? I'll duck the second part of the question, but I know I know that he used to have abortion <laughs> rights to support earlier in his, uh, in his, in his views. Exactly. Um, so there's that. But look, I mean, this was we heard this term Faustian bargain bandied about a lot after Trump's election in 2016 from a lot of conservatives who said um, that that his appointment to the judiciary trump everything else. No, no pun intended. But they, they supersede everything else in their views. And now they might have that comeuppance right now. They might have that at least to be able to say, OK, you know, we 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 held our nose and voted for someone who. Um, who, who goes against a lot of their moral values and, 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 and principles, but at the same time got three Supreme Court nominees, uh, two of which, at least two of which, um, you know, pacified moderate Republicans doing the, doing the, um, the hearings, judicial hearings, by saying that they would, or indicating they would not overturn Roe v. Wade. So um, we're hearing from senators like Susan Collins in Maine who feel like they're, they've been betrayed um, by, by these new appointments in this case. Um, but yeah, you you can hear, you hear a lot of cheering from conservative quarters um, over the last few days who say that it was worth it, you know, if, if for this ruling alone. So we'll see if it if it changes substantially. But that's the early word we're getting from, from conservatives. All right, um, thank you all for a really terrific conversation in our first segment of the show. I want to get to a break right now, and when we come back, Fred, I'm going to start off with you and ask you a little bit, given your experience as a clerk for the U.S. Supreme Court about how you saw this all unfolding and what you can imagine must be going on among people who work at the court, the justices themselves. We'll do that more after these messages. 
Fred Smith, Adrian Jones, Riley Bunch, Greg Bluestein joined me for today's Political Rewind. Uh, before I get back to uh, talking about the court, uh, one quick uh, item, and Greg, maybe you can help me with this. I'm looking at the Georgia Votes website, which has become the go-to place to turn for uh, up-to-the-minute information on people who are voting. And um, I think I want to make sure I got the numbers right that I talked about earlier. According to Georgia Votes, we've now had 60, more than 64,000 people cast ballots uh, in, in the uh, 2022 primary election, uh, 27 plus thousand of them Democratic, 36,000 uh, Republican ballots were cast. Not surprising there'd be more Republican votes given that they have the contested uh, races, especially at the top of the ballot. But so we're really talking about um, uh, 64,000 plus people having voted already. Yeah, and even more people voted on Tuesday than the record-breaking first day of early voting on Monday. We're seeing we're seeing uh, enormous uh, voter turnout. Um, you know, and, and I don't know if that's a better sign for Kemp or Purdue. It's uh, I'm yeah. spin from both campaigns, but clearly uh, a surge to the polls right now, and uh, voters realizing how, how important these elections are. Okay. Uh, yeah, the numbers I gave were updated as of yesterday, uh, uh, late in, in the day, so they should be fairly uh, uh, new. Fre- all right, Fred, let, let's look at this. First of all, help us understand, given your year as a clerk for the United, at the United States Supreme Court, talk about the sacrosanct nature of keeping opinions um, private and uh, preventing them from getting out. Yeah, no, it's an important part of the culture of the place. Um, you know, some of, to some extent, there's an understanding that, you know, at least for many, many years after one clerks, um, that one holds fairly close to the vest, uh, the internal deliberations, because um, you want justices to feel comfortable saying what they think uh, so that people can sometimes say, well, Here's why what you think is wrong, and sometimes they may change their mind about things, um, or um, or they'll sharpen their arguments, and what and what becomes the law um, is uh, is all the better for it, right? Um, this is a step beyond that, right? That this is they're actively considering this, they're actively deliberating. There are examples historically of there being five votes right after an oral argument. That and they're not being five votes by the time the opinion comes out, either because of what's in the opinion, um, or because a concurring opinion comes out and people are deeply persuaded by it, um, or because the dissenting opinion. Even I mean, it's hard to imagine this happening here, but sometimes because of the dissenting opinion, um, it kind of pulls someone else along once they see it. Right? It's it's one thing to kind of think a legal idea, but but the 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 nature of the craft uh, when you put pen to paper is that you have to support your argument. And you're, as you're reading it, you're like, is this persuasive to someone who wouldn't agree with me? Am I addressing the weakest parts of my argument, et cetera? Um, and, it, and not everything will write. Um, and, uh, and so when someone, if, if people feel like they can't say their earliest idea, their earliest draft, uh, and, and share that, um, that's, that's bad for the process. Um, it's also uh, another reason why this is important is because imagine a world in which one party got access to a judgment or an opinion and the other party didn't have that access and what that could mean when it comes to, you know, outside of this context and in a, in a commercial context, 
what that can mean for negotiations, what that can mean for markets. Um, so I, I um, you know, I, of the two things, uh, if the court, if this opinion becomes a law, um, that is a bigger deal than the leak. Um, but I do think it's important to appreciate why um, the leak um, is uh, it's deeply troubling. Well, let me let me put just what you said in a, in a different context. That of course, in the long run, the ruling itself is what will be the most important aspect of this. But we're now in a position when when justices are deliberating, um, what kind of outside pressures? Uh, come to bear on them. And so in this case, where we, what, what do we expect from pro-life, pro-choice groups for justices to be put under uh, various kinds of pressure to either maintain their position or to change it? It strikes me it has unfortunately turned this particular case entirely into a political uh, uh, world. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Um there's something about the court uh, where you, that allows some degree of insulation, um, for better or worse, when it comes to, um, to, to, to those kinds of pressures. I mean, I, I think that justices take intentional steps um, to, uh, to avoid that. I mean, there, there's, uh, you know, I recently saw a speech that Justice Barrett gave where she said that she doesn't want to see press about the Supreme Court. Um, Especially if it mentions her, um, and 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 as a way to sort of keep herself insulated, and I'm sure every justice has some way that they um, that they go about that, and that's the way that she's publicly expressed that she does that. Um, now there are some historical examples, though, of justices changing their minds for whatever reason, and it's it's hard to always pin that on the outside politics. It's hard to know why someone changes their mind, but there, you know, it's publicly reported that Chief Justice Roberts famously changed his mind in the Affordable Care Act case. And in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, three justices changed their mind. There were, there were votes to overturn Roe, and three justices, Justice Kennedy, Justice O'Connor, Justice Souter, all right. changed their mind during the process. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, it, it's, this, this, may, um, this may not become the law, but if, if, if that happens, if justices do change their minds, um, I hope that people don't necessarily assign it to um, to, pu- to public and political pressure, as opposed to the nature of the deliberation itself. Yes, but that's the problem, isn't it, Riley? That 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 Fred can point this to um, instances in which the justices did have legitimate debates among themselves that caused somebody to change their his his or her mind. But now this thing's out in the open, and as much as he'd like it to be viewed as part of the judicial process, it's going to be viewed as political, Riley, and it is one more blow to the integrity of the Supreme Court. Well, I think it's a situation where people are going to make of it what they will and what they want to make of it, right? We Since we don't have a lot, we have the, we have the draft ruling, we have that, but we know that it's subject to so much change. And when we have these decisions being made at this highest level, and we don't really have insight into it until a final ruling is out, you know, that it it is kind of left up for interpretation, as I might say. And this will be an integral part of politics is how how Republicans are interpreting this, how Democrats are interpreting, how voters are interpreting it. So it really, it does boil down to kind of this national um, pivot right in this because we're looking at it from a lot of information but also a little bit of information 
Um, Adrian, I want to take up another aspect of the Alito opinion that we have not talked about on the show yet, and that's the section of it in which he tries to argue for why uh, overturning what some people think of, of, of Roe as being a super president, having been in place for almost 50 years, having been challenged and, and remained in place. And Alito has an argument here that I think some people find troubling uh, and, and distressing. And that is this. Um, he talks about Plessy. Plessy versus Ferguson, uh, the 19th century, late 19th century ruling, uh, which essentially established separate but equal as the law of the land. And it wasn't until 1954 that Brown v. Board of Education said, no, that's no longer uh, applicable. We're overturning uh, Plessy. Um, and, And apparently we've already had people who are very disturbed that the implication that allowing states to outlaw abortion should be on a par with ending legal racial segregation is uh, very disturbing to them, especially because Alito goes on to say uh, that it's uh, people in the it's women in the black community who tend to have more abortions than uh, uh, white women. I don't know if that's statistically true or not, but that's sure. It'll be interesting to see if that whole section survives the final draft of this ruling. Ooh, I haven't thought about that piece coming out. Um, that piece alarmed me. I was um, <clears throat> struck by the fact that you know the argument was made that this is bad for black people, um, and so therefore you know that wraps in um, to the arguments that he's making. But you know I see parallels between Brown, which I personally think was weakened significantly by Parents versus Seattle. Um, and what we're talking about here, right? We're traditionally not an integrated, um, without segregation nation. We were you know, 150 years in on that ex- exact posture, even when the Constitution was established. So this argument that this isn't traditional based upon what states were doing prior to row um, could easily be applied in other places. I know that Justice Alito has essentially, in the draft, provided a caveat that this doesn't apply to other issues, but Plessy versus Ferguson was a train, was a case about segregation on the train, and it came to support Mm -hmm. all manner of Jim Crow laws. Um, The state power um, in general, you know, is codified by the Constitution, obviously, you know, provided by the Tenth Amendment, but the unfettered exercise of that is what allowed slavery, is what allowed a constitution that included slavery, it's what allowed Jim Crow, um, it's going to be what allows SB 202 to have the state not certify the election if that becomes something that uh, state leaders want to do. Um, and I think this should give people pause. Um, Greg, it occurs to me that if you're Katanji Brown-Jackson right now, you are really grateful for the fact that the, co- the opening in the court did not come uh, during this term, that you won't be stepping into that role until this is over with. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what, what, a, what a divisive era. And look, this is going to—so much has been written about this already, but this is going to completely— uh, transform the, the 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 role of the Supreme Court as an institution, right? I mean, how do you 
how do you have confidence in, in the secrecy, the, 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 the bubble that has surrounded the court? Look, there have been leaks before, but nef- never this momentous. Um, and, uh, and never, never in the modern era, something, have we seen something like this, not in the social media era that we're seeing. And, and, and look, we're seeing the impact of it right now. I mean, it has transformed the campaign trail. We have Stacey Abrams on the record with the AJC history just saying this, this will reshape her entire campaign for governor. Um, all right. Um, Riley, I want to give you a last word on this. So we're going to take a break and we're going to turn to other subjects. Uh, so go ahead, Riley. After having written that long and really well, well thought through piece about this ruling and its impact on Georgia, give us your best take on all that and we'll uh, take a break. You know, I would say that in speaking with advocates and abortion services providers, which isn't something we've touched on yet, um, it was a not a shock. Right. You know, this release of the draft wasn't a shock, even though it, it was shocking how it was released. This is something abortion providers and advocates have been expecting and preparing for. And one of the things that um, was brought up by an abortion provider is that there will may be states around us that will have stricter laws in place. So Georgia might end up being a place where people come for less restrictive laws. You know, there's just so many different things that could play out across different states. And it will be so interesting to see how it unfolds moving forward. Well, let me let me before we take a break, you think that it's that a six week ban it, it's going to be hard. I mean, I, you're right. There are states that could totally ban abortion. But, of course, one of the problems with the six weeks ban is, as Greg pointed out at the beginning of the earlier in the show, uh, many women don't even know they're pregnant at six weeks. So it's it, that's really saying something if Georgia's law will be better than some surrounding states. Well, and I also think it's going to come down to the debate that we talked about earlier about exceptions. Right. And those little minute details of the laws. All right, let's do this. Let's get our final break of the show out of the way and come back and talk about a few other political subjects on today's show. Welcome back to the show. It's uh, newsletter day here on Political Rewind. As soon as the show's over, we'll be finishing up today's newsletter. It's going to go out to people's emails later this afternoon. And if you're not subscribing, what the heck? It's time to do it. Just go to gpb.org slash newsletters if you'd like to get our weekly Wednesday newsletter. Uh, Greg, I want to talk about Rivian, but I've got it before we do. Um, J.D. Vance won the Republican primary in Ohio. He was the Trump-backed candidate. Trump uh, endorsed him pretty late in the race. He was languishing in third place before the endorsement. He ends up winning, it appears, with most of the vote uh, counted. It, by double digits over his two opponents. So it's a big victory that all of us were watching for Trump as an, uh, a, a candidate uh, who Trump endorsed uh, pulled that off. And that's going to make people like Jody Heiss, I suspect, uh, feel uh, pretty good. Maybe uh, Vernon Jones as well, other Trump-backed candidates. Uh, not so much David Perdue, I don't think. What's your take on all that? Yeah, the come from come from behind victory from J.D. Vance certainly showed that uh, it was a big test for Donald Trump, and he, and he passed. He passed with flying colors. Um, it was, uh, you know, it showed that his uh, enduring impact on the Ohio GOP, um, and you can sort of try to translate that to the Georgia GOP, but you're right. Um, it's harder to connect the dots between that and the governor's race because Trump has also really struggled when it comes to endorsing governors. And um, 
in that mm-hmm. in the Ohio race, Mike DeWine, um, who has been very critical of, of and has a very visible rifts with Donald Trump, handily won against some far right challengers who are critiquing his stance on coronavirus. So, um, you know, it goes to show you that on federal races and in some congressional races and in some high profile races, Trump's endorsement, especially you know, in, in this in this latest round of primaries, uh, went a long way. But um, it's hard to topple an incumbent. And David Perdue is seeing that firsthand. And I think I, I think, Riley, that's the point. Um, you've got to look at each of the Trump back candidates here individually in their circumstances. I mean, everybody's looking at Georgia across the country as the place that will prove one way or the other whether Trump is still the leader of the party. But it's not that easy. Jody Heiss isn't as well known as Brad Raffensperger. David Perdue's taking on a sitting uh, uh, governor uh, as an example. Um, it might be very helpful to a Burt Jones in the lieutenant governor's race to, to have him stand out from other candidates in that race. But there are so many different circumstances that you really can't just say it's all about Trump or not about Trump. Well, there's different circumstances across races, different circumstances across candidates, across political histories, right? And I think we saw a lot of that play into the U.S. Senate runoffs in 2020 as well. So I think it's hard to say whether if one Trump-backed candidate wins, others won't, and vice versa, especially when we had, you know, Greg reported at the tele-rally that he was speaking at for David Perdue, he was saying, well, if Perdue doesn't win, you know, it's it's moot for me in here, right? He wasn't even talking about the, the down-ballot races that have a lot of Trump influence in these statewide offices. So it is just so, um, you know, kind of up in the air at this point. Nevertheless, Adrian, the Ohio victory for J.D. Vance, for people like a Jeff Duncan with his GOP 2.0 and others who are hoping to see uh, the Trump power over the party begin to diminish, uh, Ohio says he's still the force and candidates and Republican races had better uh, be obsequious and pay tribute to him. Um, unfortunately, that's what it feels like today. Um, although yesterday I was Especially in the morning, I was on a bender where I thought, you know, maybe his influence is going to wane. Um, but, you know, this is a good media push for him. The only thing that I can hope is that, you know, he's also mercurial. So, you know, I feel like he's getting a little bit of, of icy towards uh, Purdue, for example. You know, you just never know when he's going to change his attention. And so I'm hoping he uh, miscalculates on a couple of these and doesn't necessarily support um, and end up with a critical mass of Trump-backed candidates who end up winning their races. Fred? Yeah, maybe the, a picture may be beginning to emerge a little early where, um, where Trump's influence is greatest in federal elections, uh, where, where people kind of, mm-hmm. they get, or at least where they're willing to give him more deference because those are the people, if he were reelected, that he'd be working with. And it, it resonates with something that I think was Greg Bluestein said uh, about a, uh, a middle Georgia uh, sheriff uh, who, who said, look, you know, when it comes to who had you know, Trump paraphernalia and Kemp paraphernalia <laughs> and said, you know, look, you know, Trump, uh, we trust him on when it comes to the national stuff. Um, but this is a Georgia issue. Um, and so that may be part of the picture that's emerging that. So in federal elections, maybe he gets more deference and then. And then we'll see, this is the second part of my hypothesis is, is less supported even than my first, um, where one, uh, elections where there's kind of 
there's low salience. People don't have a lot of strong opinions, and the endorsement is doing a lot of is doing all of the work. work. Um, and so some of the down ballot races, if he really does put you know more of his energy there, um, and that you know that that seems like the picture that might be emerging in terms of his influence. All right. Hey, Greg, we're, we're short on time, but I do think it's important that you give us a couple minutes. You really, you, you've got a great story about how big the state's uh, commitment to Rivian turned out to be. We've all been waiting to hear about it. Just give us a few of the salient details on that. Well, the overall state local package is $1.5 billion. It's the biggest ever in the state of history, the state of Georgia's history in terms of incentives. And it's for the biggest economic development project in Georgia history. That comes out to about $200,000 or so a job, 7,500 jobs. Um, many of these are built, baked into the state law and the statutory <laughs> codes for, um, you know, for, for machinery, for jobs, all that. Um, so that's a part of um, that. That is a part of how these incentives are, are, are meted out. Um, but a lot of these are local incentives as well. And we're talking about infrastructure improvements, um, you know, tens of millions of dollars for, um, for training centers, for new programs to, um, to recruit and retain um, high-paid $56,000 average um, salaries for these jobs, high-paid workers, and also new infrastructures such as extended rail lines, a new I-20 interchange, new roads. All this, and of course the land, $100 million plus for the land. So all this goes into this enormous package um, that is becoming a political hot potato because David Perdue is saying it's too big of a deal. He's a former corporate executive who says this is just too much money. And we should point out that this is taxpayer money, uh, which the state is allocating uh, to Rivian. Um, Just to be clear, uh, we all have a stake in Rivian based on this. We do, and it's a big gamble because um, this is a startup, essentially. It's a well-funded startup, but this is a startup that hasn't produced many cars yet, many electric vehicles yet. And we've seen some of these deals go sour in other states. Um, So the state's taking a big gamble, but they feel like it's worth it because it is a 7,500-job, $5 billion project that will transform that region. Uh, just one other quick note that I thought was important in the reporting you all did. Uh, there's a big clawback provision as well. Rivian's got to commit for what? How many years ahead that the state holds them accountable for uh, uh, what they've promised they'll do in this deal? We're talking all told twenty years, so the state can yeah. claw back a, a significant number of that of those incentives if Rivian doesn't live up to its promise. Okay, that's it. Um, Riley, it is going to be fascinating to see whether David Perdue gets any mileage out of his fight against Rivian. Um, you got about 10 seconds to th- say whether you agree that it's an issue he can make something out of or not. <laughs> well, it depends on how well he makes an issue out of it, doesn't it, <laughs> So, if, yeah, you know, okay. <laughs> he can if he wants to. Oh, Riley, this is why we, we think so highly of you as a reporter at GPB. Riley Bunch, Fred Smith, Adrian Jones, and Greg Bluestein. thank you for a terrific political rewind uh, today. Thank you, Natalie Mendenhall, Sam Burmistaws, Jesse Neiswanger, for your behind-the-scenes work to make the show as good as we hope it is on a daily basis. That's it for us today. Uh, we'll be back again, of course, tomorrow. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Please take care and stay healthy. Bye-bye, everybody.